You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 47. Today, I am joined by EDSA principal Doug Smith, and he's going to talk to us about landscape architecture. Um, This is a topic that uh, they actually reached out to us to talk about, and I was really excited because I I actually don't know a ton about this, so I'm going to learn a lot. Um, So, Doug, can you kind of start by telling us a little bit about your background and why you got into this line of work? Sure. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, well, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, a little known profession. Um, and I really didn't even probably hadn't even heard of the term landscape architecture till I was in about my second year of college. And um, really, when I reflect back on how I got into the line of work in general, you know, I grew up in a, in a small town in the Midwest in the U.S., um, very agricultural economy. And in that economy and and in a farming community like that, you know, it's all about the land. And um, so I kind of had this connection with land that I probably didn't realize as I was growing up. And I never really thought about uh, a career uh, that dealt with land and land use and, and, and stewardship of land. But then when I discovered this curriculum of landscape architecture, I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty amazing. And it, and it really hit home with me. So um, that's really kind of how I found or discovered landscape architecture in general. Yeah, I, I think that's really neat because um, in doing some research, you know, leading up to the show, I actually watched a couple of videos and, and most of the folks in those videos said the same thing, like, oh, I had never heard of it or um, I was in an architecture program and happened to hear about this and got into it. So um, it's interesting that a lot of folks seem to have the same journey. And, um, you know, as someone who is also kind of trying to find their way and find a new career path in the environmental field, I think others will probably be excited to learn about this this field. Um, so can you explain to our audience what is landscape architecture? Sure. Um, you know, and I think it's it's a career path or a profession that's kind of a best kept secret, I really think. Um, it's not only really relevant here and now, but it's, I think it's a profession of the future um, as, as we really have more of a climate crisis growing um, and, and, you know, uh, the, the environment and the, the health of the environment is, is ever more important. I think this is a profession that's at the forefront of that. And in fact, you know, when you say landscape architecture, a lot of people kind of get tripped up on the term landscape. So they immediately think of garden design and maybe park design. And we often kind of say, you know, really, maybe this ought to be called environmental architecture, because that's, I think that's a better characterization of, of really what it is. But essentially, it's the use of outdoor space. And it can deal with a real wide spectrum of, of land scale from, you know, we, we may be working on um, establishing, for instance, uh, regional conservation zones, and that could be dealing with literally tens of thousands of acres at a time. Um, but at the other end of that spectrum, um, we deal with with human scale spaces, outdoor uh, plazas in cities and cities and parks and, and corporate campuses and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting profession because it, it really brings together um, ecology and sociology 
and engineering and art and design and kind of brings those all together. And I think another really neat thing about the profession is, is that landscape architects have a really wide variety of choices in their career path. Um, it, it's, a, it's just the training applies to a lot of different opportunities. You might work, for instance, for a, a government agency, um, you know, at a local or state or even federal level. Um, and then a lot of people also, you know, are in the private practice side, and but they have, may have clients in the public sector, again, working for cities or states. Um, and then a lot of landscape architects also work uh, with clients in the in the private real estate industry. So it's it's really a really broad kind of overreaching um, profession and, and brings all those things together. So it's really any way that humans utilize the land or nature um, in a variety, you know, across the spectrum, I guess. Um, can, can you kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, what is it that your job consists of in, in your organization? Well, you know, and, and I've just to put in perspective, um, I've been practicing for, for quite a few years. I've been with EDSA my whole career, started here right out of college. So this is my 35th year of practice. And, um, you know, as a principal, um, I have a wide, wear a lot of different hats uh, in terms of, of what we do for our clients. Um, but part of that is, you know, developing new business and bringing that into the firm and then overseeing uh, the process. It's a very team oriented process. Um, and, and, you know, we tackle all kinds of prob problem solving, um, usually involving design, but also involving obviously science and, and art as well. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I do as a landscape architect on a daily basis. We, we deal a lot with um, um, processes within our projects and, and what we do as a profession. Um, and we employ here at EDSA uh, something that we call performance-based design, which is really uh, an approach to that problem-solving process where we kind of establish a baseline of metrics or conditions. And then the design work that we engage in, we, we really try to improve the outcomes of the design uh, against that, that baseline. The baseline is kind of a business as usual approach, if you will. And then, and then we're always looking for, for ways to use in, innovate and to use technology to have better outcomes with the design. And that's something that has to be measured not only during that design process, but, but ongoing into the future. Once projects are finished and up and running, there's a continual monitoring of the performance of, of the project in general. Yeah, very cool. Well, that sounds like a supporting job. Um, so I, I know that um, landscape architecture, you know, like you said, can kind of be used to address a lot of the changing climate uh, change problems that we're, we're seeing arise. Um, so, so what are some, I guess, ways that it can be used to adapt to this changing climate and even maybe create natural carbon sinks and other you know, features? Sure. Um, well, and you know, a lot of a lot of people are more tuned in to um, climate change these days, um, and and the, so there's this term that people have been using more climate positive design. It, you know, in years past, we we might have looked at projects and say, how can we minimize, let's say, our impact to the environment, and then that slowly evolved around to, well, how can we how can we have no um, no 
Im impacts at all or what you might call net zero. And then today it's really evolved to what we would call net positive, And that's the kind of the climate positive aspect of this. How, how do we actually design um, projects in outdoor spaces that not only don't harm the environment, but actually give back and, and enhance and add something to the environment. And so some of the ways we do that, you know, um, we're looking at this in a systems based way. We, you know, we look at large watersheds. We look at, um, you know, plant communities and ecosystems. Um, we have, we're often studying stormwater within projects, in, for instance, within cities and looking at um, a watershed of an area and how we best protect that for the health of the environment and for the health of, of the residents of the city. There's a lot of things that, you know, then you get into to micro design solutions, um, you know, bioswales, bioretention areas and rain garden systems, those kinds of things. Um, there's also a lot of cities now are undertaking greening projects. Um, we're involved in, in a fair amount of work in the Middle East um, and, and a, a couple of large cities there, you know, that's a, an arid desert environment, but they're really trying to transform their cities by um, adding literally uh, millions of trees over the next, you know, 10 and 20 years to various areas of, of the city. So um, that's another way to do it. We practice um, what we call xeriscape with all of our landscape design, and that is, you know, using native materials, endemic materials, um, uh, water conserving plant materials. And then I guess um, a couple other really interesting things. We we always look at um, putting roads on diets is how we kind of like to say it, where um, we kind of, we go to our clients in a lot of cases, we say, um, what if we just reduce the width of this, this roadway or this trail by a half a foot or a foot? And when you add that up over the miles and miles of roadways that may be in a large project, you know, that's a big reduction in, in carbon footprint, for instance. So those are really kind of a few of the things that that we like to engage in when we when we approach these these new communities and, and new developments. Yeah. Right. Um, do you have, I guess, examples of sites that maybe you've worked on or other projects that have, um, you know, that specifically someone could go look at or, or research if they wanted to kind of learn, see this done successfully? I know you mentioned the Middle East, but um, anywhere else that comes to mind? Yeah, sure. Um, a, a couple of projects that I'll mention, um, and we do a lot of work at EDSA here in, in the hospitality industry. So I'll talk about a, a project uh, in the what's called the Riviera Maya, which is on the Yucatan Peninsula of, of Mexico. And that area is famous uh, because kind of the anchor destination there is, is Cancun. So everybody knows Cancun is kind of this mass tourism destination. Um, but if you move south from Cancun along that shoreline, um, there's a lot of new uh, hospitality-related development happening. And we undertook a project, um, it actually now goes back about 15 years to its, its origins, um, uh, a project called Maya Coba. It's, it's a large piece of land, about it's over 600 acres, um, and a really interesting kind of composition to this particular piece of land. It had the the coastal sand um, strand. And then just behind that um, was a, an estuary area of mangroves. And then eventually towards the, the middle and back of the, 
of the property, you got to the upland areas. And so there was this, this interesting um, view that we took along with the client of how we could do some resort development a little differently and especially given the configuration of the land. And so we started to look at more of an ecotourism model instead of this mass tourism model, which means, you know, making, putting, putting a resort there in much lighter density, uh, a lighter footprint on the land. Um, we looked at the history of the culture there and the, and the Mayan villages that established there, you know, centuries ago. And, and they had this pattern of settling on upland areas and then making their way through the waterways towards the waterfront to do their hunting and fishing and so forth. So we kind of adopted that same pattern and that same story. Um, and the interesting thing that we ended up doing, um, the client was definitely willing to um, look at this in a much more environmentally friendly and sensitive way. Uh, they invested millions of dollars in environmental research for the project. And so we established that baseline that I talked about earlier, you know, what was the biodiversity that was existing on the site? It actually, some of the upland area had been uh, cattle grazing, so it had been damaged and, and that gave us some opportunities to locate the development in, in already damaged areas of the upland. But also what we did was, and working with environmentalists and working with a whole team, um, we brought water channels back into the mangrove area that allowed better water exchange with the ocean it improved the health of that mangrove area. And that gave us also a way to move guests from the upland areas in the middle and back of the project towards the, you know, the, the sand and, and the beachfront. Um, and we were able to really have a, a very positive impact on this piece of land over about a 10 year period where they were measuring, you know, all the metrics around the environment. Um, we, we were able to rescue and transplant over 300,000 trees. We reforested uh, uh, the, the whole native upland area with, with native plants over that time. There was about a 500% increase in, in the biodiversity of the fauna that were discovered on the, on the property over that same time. So um, it's a project that we're very proud of. It's won many international sustainability awards over that time. So that's that's one example. And I'll mention um, one other real quickly, going more to an urban environment um, right here in South Florida and just north of where we are here in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Pompano Beach um, wanted to, it, a project that really started out just as, a, as an upgrade to a streetscape on their, on their beachfront area. And um, they brought us in and we immediately said, well, look, there's some other opportunities here. And one of those is to reestablish the primary dune that had been destroyed over time by, you know, development activity in their public beachfront area. And that's that's such an important part of, you know, sustainability of land, because in coastal areas, that primary dune is part of the protection, natural protection system um, in storm events. And so we not only upgraded a streetscape, but we really created a whole new waterfront for the city. We um, we created natural protection in storm events with a, a new dune system. Um, and it's amazing the, you know, also the economic impact that a project like that has. All of a sudden they have new restaurateurs wanting to come down to the waterfront to this area. Um, a lot of people now can come and enjoy this area. 
um, has it has more capacity to to carry um, people, but uh, but also a lot of other activities at the same time. So that's a couple of examples of what we get to do as landscape architects, really on a daily basis. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It sounds like every day is different. Every day definitely is different. Every day brings I, yeah. I every like day is a new challenge. Yeah, and it sounds like um, you're very much in tune with um, the local area that you're working in. So a lot of times people want to make, you know, retransform the land into another um, ecosystem or another, you know, I guess bring in plants that aren't um, compatible or try to create something that just doesn't work in that area. And it sounds like you guys look at what's already there and you work around it so that you're not fighting nature. You're actually helping her and getting her back on track kind of is that accurate that that's very accurate i mean a, a big part of the process that we undertake for every project and and it's a it's a proven process over time and it's it's one that all designers um use but you start with analysis you have to understand um, what you're dealing with the context we do a lot of work um, in a team environment so in a lot of cases we have an opportunity to to make recommendations to our clients about what other kinds of professionals should come to the table. And environmentalists um, are often, you know, on that team um, and they're very important to the process. And other, um, you know, other uh, professionals that are, that are really important to that process in coastal environments, we do a lot of work in coastal environments, so, you know, marine engineers and coastal engineers become very important as collaborators as well. Um, but yeah, it all starts with, with that understanding of the existing environment. And we're always looking for ways, um, not only to protect what's there, but actually to enhance it and, and make it even better and make it function better um, for, for, for all of us. Um, you know, it's really our future. Yeah. Um, I, I wanna go back to something you mentioned in your first example, you talked about ecotourism. And I know that's, um, a term we're hearing a lot more lately. Can you just kind of, you know, give a quick uh, explanation of what that is? I, I've, I, you know, a lot of times that gets associated with negative things because it leads to environmental degradation. But I also know that there are ways to do it sustainably, and it's it's a good way to introduce people to nature. So, um, is that something you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, sure. Let me touch on that a little bit. So, ecotourism. You know, I guess it's synonymous with other types of tourism. So, for instance, you may have heard of, uh, heard of agritourism, and that's would be people that are interested in in having an experience around agriculture, for instance. But ecotourism, just as it's as it says, is people that are interested in the environment. And so that what that usually translates to is is a hospitality offering. Um, that's very light touch on the land and, and somehow is very integrated into its environment. Um, it's usually small scale because obviously uh, that would be part of being eco-sensitive and eco-friendly. Um, and so, you know, we, we've had the opportunity to work on, on several ecotourism projects around the world. Um, one that um, comes to mind um, is a project in the bamboo forest in, in China. And um, it was a lot of fun because we actually brought in a specialist architect who deals in bamboo structures in that case. And so a lot of the building materials literally came from right on site. And that's, that's one of the you know, precepts of, of being sustainable 
um, in, in, in design is, is to use as much native and local material as you can. Um, but the result was these, these beautiful bamboo structures, uh, you know, uh, through the accommodations of, of, the, of the destination. And, um, you know, so that's just an example, but it, it, it can happen in almost any kind of environment in any place in the world from, you know, a very desert, arid desert setting to, a, to, you know, a lush rainforest to everything in between. And, and um, you know, th that's, that's kind of a special part of the hospitality industry that we've enjoyed working in. Yeah, I definitely encourage folks, if you have the means and the time to try to you know, uh, participate responsibly in those those activities if you can, because one, um, you, you get to experience nature and all her different <laughs> varieties. And also, you know, um, fortunately, a lot of those places um, are kind of disappearing. So it's it's kind of in a lot of cases, unfortunately, um, time sensitive, I guess, if you if you ever want to. Uh, no, and I, I agree. Um, Jennifer, so, I think it's I think that's a good way if I could just add for people to um, understand different environments around the world, because normally these eco resorts, part of what they're doing is is educating people um, as to what those local environmental conditions are. And and in most all cases, again, they're trying to give something back to that community, that local community, um, both the residents in a social way and 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 the environment itself. Yeah, I actually uh, can attest to that. I went when I went to the Great Barrier Reef. You know, did, we did a tour. Uh, they they take us, you take you out on a boat for an hour and a half or something to where they drop you off. And the guy leading the tour had a captive audience, and he used that time very wisely to educate us on the importance of the reef as well as his government for not doing enough and you know it was, it was interesting but it was also very smart on his part I think because he knew like we couldn't go anywhere and he's going to tell us you know here's what you need to do to fix it <laughs> um so, so yeah these folks really are passionate and it's not just their livelihood I think they actually they really care about the, the places they live and the the damage that's happening to you know their homes um so speaking of experiencing nature you know tons of research and just personal experience um, has shown that being in nature has a healing component for humans. Um, so how is the work that you and other landscape architects, um, you know, how does it help create opportunities for people to better engage with nature while protecting? I know this ecotourism is a big part of it, but are there any other, you know, ways that you would, <laughs> you would mention? Sure. Uh, and that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I think in the end of all of this, for us as landscape architects really comes back uh, to humanity and providing and creating space for people to enjoy and, and for people to interact with land and with the environment, you know, but also space for people to interact with each other in a social way. Um, and so, you know, landscape is really expressed in a, in a really wide spectrum of forms. Uh, it could be, you know, really small, Kind of high energy urban spaces in a city or on the other end it, it could be again a, like a large scale uh, it could be a national park for instance you know it, it's that level of of scale that that we deal with as as landscape architects um, so it's really i think it comes back to engagement with people that's what it's all about and engaging people in outdoor spaces um, and we're really we are seeing trends um, 
as people get more tuned into, as you call it, the kind of the healing value of, of nature, um, we're seeing trends towards more prioritization of public realm um, in the cities, uh, but also, you know, environmental conservation. Um, one example of that is um, that we're actually seeing, and this is interesting, the conversion in some cases of golf courses back into public park spaces. Um, you know, when, when we had an economic meltdown about a, a decade ago, um, there were unfortunately several golf courses that just couldn't financially make it. And they had to, the, the owners of that land had to start to look at other ways to, to repurpose it. And so one of the, I think, happy conclusions is some golf courses actually got converted to, to park space. And um, so now, you know, it's not only available for, for those who are playing golf, for those who live right on the golf course, but actually to a, a broader spectrum of people out in, in public. Um, and so I think that's an example of one of the positive kind of aspects that are, that's happening out in the world today. Yeah, I love examples of um, land being repurposed, uh, whether it's a golf course or a landfill or, you know, some a super fun site that got, you know, fixed up. I mean, just the idea that we can continue to make productive use of that land and, and turn it into something positive when it maybe used to have a negative use or just a use that was very exclusive, like a golf course where, you know, not a lot of people could actually <laughs> access it. Right. And, you know, there's another trend that I'm sure a lot of people are aware of is that urban sites that are have been really degraded over time, um, that are that are polluted, are really being cleaned up uh, much more these days and, and converted into into usable space. In many cases, you know, new development for for parks, for for residential communities and that sort of thing. So um, we had the opportunity to work on a few of those kinds of projects as well. And that's a, you know, you talk about regeneration of land. Um, that, that's a, a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the urban gardening projects, you know, are so cool to see uh, the examples of people reclaiming their, <laughs> their ability to grow food and, you know, the land. So stuff like that is a lot of fun. If, if you guys have that available in your area, definitely look into those stories because it's very inspiring for sure. <laughs> no doubt. Urban, there's a, there's a large movement in urban agriculture, as you're mentioning. Um, mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, it's, it is reclaiming land, underutilized land, um, that, you know, maybe an abandoned lot in a neighborhood or something of that nature and putting it to work. And it's, uh, it, it improves the health of the residents on a number of different levels, um, you know, not only from a physical standpoint, but from a social standpoint as well. Yeah, that might be a good uh, future episode topic, actually. Now that we're... It absolutely would. And you could get some landscape architects who have been really involved in that movement yeah. to, to join that. Absolutely. Yeah. All about anybody, um, you know, like I said, making take taking land and putting it to best use and not just leaving it fallow or, or empty, you know, along this this idea of, of getting people to connect with nature and, and bringing, I guess, sites up to where they can be experienced. On the flip side of that, you know, there's a lot of places that end up being overrun because they're just so popular, you know, like you said, some of the national parks. So how do we 
you know, this is this is a, a one I didn't prepare you for, so <laughs> I apologize. But in your opinion, how do we kind of balance that, um, you know, with people who want to experience nature, but they might gravitate towards the Grand Canyon or, the, you know, the big name places when um, they're kind of getting overrun almost and run to the point where it's degrading the land? Um, is there a way to balance that, you think, or should we just try to spread it out and limit access to some of these places? Well, I think, as as you just mentioned, there is a management that, you know, I know our national park system um, has a, a pretty stringent program of, of really understanding, and this is how we put it as landscape architects, kind of the carrying capacity of, of let's say, a national park. You know, it can only withstand so many visitors at any mm -hmm. given time before, as you noted, you know, degradation starts to happen. And, and so that that management aspect is is hugely important. Um, but you know, as the global population grows, and kind of what you're pointing out is is we have a need for more open space to serve that population, that growing population. And so, you know, we can't we can't stagnate and, and kind of just close the tap on on the amount of, of open space that's available to to the public. Um, we have to continue to take land, set it aside, manage it, but also importantly, as you're noting, make it accessible for people because unfortunately there are conservation, you know, lands and projects that um, that get designated, but then as to me, it's a shame that then there's no public access to really understand and enjoy what what those lands are all about, and there is a there is a, a way to do that um, in a in a responsible fashion, and um, so we're always advocating um, when we're involved in these kind of conservation projects that there there needs to be access for the public as well, and and that's an important aspect of yeah. of designating those kinds of spaces. Yeah, there are genuinely circumstances where humans have no business being there because the habitat needs to be protected to that extent or whatever. But um, but yeah, yeah, I think maybe we can find a balancing point to get give people access and still protect nature as well. Um, and I think Edward Abbey was the one that had a lot to say about that in his book. If you if anybody's interested in in reading his book and, and learning more about that, but um, so. Is there anything else we haven't talked about about landscape architecture? Um, or, you know, just just anything we've discussed uh, so far that you want to touch on? Uh, you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground here with with the basics of, of the profession and, and you know, I, I think responsible land use. Um, again, I guess I would say just like as I expressed, we get to deal with this really wide scale ranging scale of, of project types. Um, I think attention to the detail of environmental protectionism, um, good environmental design, uh, it, it also spans a wide spectrum of, of detail from, you know, looking at, again, like a regional watershed, literally for a whole perhaps state or, or, or quadrant of a state and, and looking at, um, all the water quality issues that happen around that kind of a system, um, all the way down to, you know, the specific species that we might specify on a project 
um, to to add to and enhance a, a, an existing natural environment and to create more habitat in those environments um, so that you, again, increase biodiversity. Um, and that's all, all of this is, is also kind of part of, you mentioned a term earlier, carbon sink. You know, uh, the great news is, is that we can um, mitigate the, uh, some of the climate change that's happening. We've got to slow it down, we've got to act. But part of that mitigation is, is uh, preserving green areas, enhancing those green areas, you know, literally planting trees, um, so the more we can do with those kinds of systems and, and the landscape, you know, the better it's going to be for all of us going into the future. Yeah, well, it's definitely important work. And if folks are interested in working in, in your field, uh, what advice would you offer them to, to get to that point? Um, well, there's so so I think I would say, firstly, um, if you're interested in this field, landscape architecture, uh, the kind of our our professional organization is the American Society of Landscape Architects. Of course, that's here in the United States. Um, there's also international associations for landscape architects as well. Uh, but if you go, we call that ASLA, American Society of Landscape Architects. They, if you just go on their website, um, there's a wealth of information there about the profession. Um, if you're interested in being a landscape architect, you need to you need to go to school and, and get a degree and study um, all the different kind of facets that I have described. Um, there are about I think there's more than 50 accredited degree programs across the U.S. Pretty much one in almost every state. Um, so if you're interested, you can you can go seek those out. Um, landscape architects, uh, it's usually a four to five year degree program because of all of the information that we're trying to, to pack in to get the, the, the basic, you know, the basis of the of the, the profession established there. Um, and then just as a as a landscape architect on an everyday basis, uh, I tell you, again, I've been doing this for 35 years. Every day is a learning experience. Every day is a, is a new challenge and a a bit of new information that you may learn um, in, in your engagement with, with a project or simply your engagement with other people. Um, so I think it's important. You have to kind of be willing to be a sponge and, and be absorb you know, new information and learn every day. And I think for most people that's, that's interesting and exciting. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of different aspects to the profession. Um, so uh, if you were to get a a degree or study that you know there's a lot of different avenues open to you um, you know one of the things that we have done as a firm is to do a little bit of outreach to try to educate um, people that are still either in middle school or high school as to what this profession is all about and um, so we've gone out to high schools i know asla um, has a program to do that as well we're always kind of recruiting people to educate them about the profession and, and get people more people interested in, in pursuing degrees in landscape architecture. Start them young, huh? <laughs> Start them young. You have to. And we need yeah. more people in this field. Yeah, good. Um, are there any other resources you'd like to share, whether that's books or podcasts or documentaries that you have found helpful or? Yeah, 
Um, so there's one documentary, um, and you, you supplied this question to me, so I, I thought about this a little bit, but there's one documentary that I saw recently that I really would like to uh, recommend for, for everybody in the world, really, and it's, it's called Kiss the Ground. I think you can find it on Netflix. Um, Woody Harrelson narrates the documentary, but it's, it's really an interesting um, story about the importance of soil health and regenerating the world's soils as part of this solution to, to battle, you know, the climate change that we're all facing and the climate crisis we're facing, frankly. Um, and it, it, it talks about, uh, it, really the importance of soil in that whole process. It's really kind of the, the basis of all life, if you will. Um, and it talks a little bit about, you know, more uh, forward thinking land use practices and, and farming and agricultural practices as well. It, it kind of looks at how corporate farming, frankly, um, has desiccated soil in a lot of places in the world and how there's a, a different and better way to, to do that going forward. Um, and it's, you know, again, this basis of soil as a way to restore ecosystems and, and create more abundant food supplies with less resources and that sort of thing. So again, it's called Kiss the Ground. It's a really strong documentary and I would highly recommend everybody go seek that out. Yeah, that's been recommended to me several times and I haven't had time to watch it, but I, I'm going to re-add that <laughs> to move it up on my list. because You're uh, in for I, a treat. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, yeah, anything that espouses the importance of soil and regenerative ag and all that is, you know, in, in my book, can't go wrong. I mean, we did a show on that. Uh, well, we've done a few shows on all of those topics and, and it's just so important. So I really encourage folks to to learn more about it as well. Um, okay, well, anything else um, before we move on to our green life hacks? No, let's let's go. All right. Well, uh, this is a segment where we um, just share a green life hack, something that helps us live more sustainably or a tip or an idea that we want to share with our listeners. So um, what is your green life hack for us today? Well, this is a simple one that I, I hope a lot of people are practicing, and that is composting. Um, you know, there's on a daily basis in, in everybody's world, and, and I know in our household, there's so many things that we used to just throw in the garbage can or, or throw down the sink disposal that don't have to go that direction. Um, and so I bought a big composting bin a few years ago, and um, you know, so rather than putting these things into landfills, um, this material where, you know, what you can compost does naturally break down, of course, but I think there's a better way to do it. And we don't need to put it again down the sink where it goes into our sanitary sewer systems and kind of overloads those systems. Um, but you can just do it locally, do it, do it within your own, your, your own either apartment complex or home. Um, and it's a way to then create more healthy soil and, and, and give something positive back, you know, to just your, your local place that you live or, or, or your own property. Um, and it's a very simple thing to do. So about once every other day, I take our little bucket of compost items out to the composting bin. And, and um, so we, we've enjoyed being able to do that. 
The other one I'll throw out there as a landscape architect, and we've talked about it, is, is simply plant a tree. Um, Reforesting the world is really one of the ways that you can sequester a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. And um, it's a simple thing to do. So either get involved in your community with some tree planting programs um, or just do it yourself. We, uh, we have engaged here at EDSA with a nonprofit um, called One Tree Planted. And so we just actually started that last year with, with One Tree Planted, but we are donating um, thousands of trees on an annual basis to be planted in different regions around the world. So you can do it on your own or you can, you can engage with a nonprofit organization such as One Tree Planted to, to accomplish that. Yeah, that's a great. Those are great tips, and um, I'm beginning to see a theme in your in your logic here. Soil, trees, you know. Hopefully, <laughs> everyone listening is catching on as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So mine, uh, my green life hack is is kind of going back to something we talked about earlier um, with the ecotourism and just experiencing nature. And uh, we mentioned that a lot of um, places get really popular and attract a lot of visitors and, and as a result can become overrun or um, even kind of, you know, worn down by by the interaction. So my um, suggestion to folks is as the weather warms up, I know this is coming out in February, so maybe not this month, but um, as spring and summer uh, come up, uh, try to get out there and experience a site that maybe is a little lesser known. Um, so there's, I think, 60 something national parks um, all over the country. There's countless state parks. Um, your, your city and your county probably has parks, but you can also, it doesn't have to be a park. It could, it could just be a location. There's, you know, a lot of places people like to go visit, or maybe you have a spot that you, you prefer that you don't want the world to know about. <laughs> um, but where, whatever it is, try to discover something that's off the, the beaten trail, I guess, and, and maybe give some love to some of those other equally beautiful spots of the world. Um, I, I always find that those are more rewarding half the time anyways, and it's less crowded. So <laughs> it's a double. Yeah, I'll add to that, Jennifer, you know, with the, the uh, pandemic, global pandemic that we've all lived through over the last couple of years, you know, I think it's, it's just created a lot more anxiousness and anxiety in general. And, you know, getting outdoors and getting into these kind of natural areas and, experiencing that is a really good way to battle some of that anxiety i think it's a it's good for the soul yeah yeah definitely and um it's a, a i guess a more socially distanced way to still socialize if you're if you're missing actually interacting with people because i know for two two years of having to limit what you do can can be a lot and, and still getting to actually see people but you're outside in a safe area um is kind of a nice compromise. So, well, thank you so much um, for being on the show again, Doug. And um, where can folks find you and or EDSA online if they want to learn more? Sure. Our website is the place to go, of course, and that is www.edsaplan.com. So it's edsaplan.com. And uh, you'll find out about the company, the work we do. Um, there's a lot of information also on the website uh, that just talks a little bit more in depth about the work in terms of you know some of the 
as I said, performance-based design, and there's a lot of articles related to that. So it's a, it's a pretty good resource to, to find out a little bit more about the profession as well. Great. And I'm guessing on all the social media platforms as well, EDSA? Yeah. yeah. And when you go on the website, you'll, you'll find those platforms as well. And you can okay. find, you can find us on LinkedIn and you can also find me personally on LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. And I will link to all this in the show notes. If you're interested in following up um, with anything that we've talked about, any resources, um, you can find me personally here on sustainably geeky. Um, on Marginally Geeky this month, which is our sister show, we talk about the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's a very um, interesting discussion we had about that. And then um, I am also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. Um, and you can also find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and YouTube and um, just about any podcast platform that is out there. So wherever you're listening, I hope that you have subscribed and given us a five-star rating, a thumbs up, uh, whatever they let you do to tell us how awesome you think we are. And um, please share the show. If you have questions or suggestions for future topics, feel free to reach out via social media. Um, Doug, thank you again for being on. I really uh, learned a lot from our conversation and um, good luck in you know future projects. I'm excited to see what you do next. Thank you, Jennifer. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, uh, thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 